0: Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband Program here at the London School of Economics. And it's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight, Beatrice Finn. Um, Beatrice is the executive director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICAN, as it's known, which, as I'm sure you know, was awarded last year's Nobel Peace Prize um, ICANN is a, is a coalition of a number of non-governmental organisations, over 100, I think 103, is that possibly right? In 103 countries. We're like over 500 now. 500 organisations in over 100 countries. Um, and it's, it, I think its basic um, goal, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, is really to promote the adherence and implementation of the UN's recently agreed nuclear weapons ban treaty. I mean, it goes by the official name, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, an agreement that was um, come to just in July last year, and one which will come into force once 50 nations have ratified it. And I note in passing that the UK has so far declined to do so. Beatrice herself um, was a student of international relations at the University of Stockholm, was a student of international law here in London, and she's written about a number of different things. She's written about the law of weaponry, humanitarian law, questions about gender and disarmament, and the relationship between civil society and diplomacy. Soon after she graduated, she spent quite some time working for the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. I guess some of you may know this organisation, but I think more people should. I mean, it's an amazing organisation has, which has its roots in the opposition to the First World War. And it tells you something about the commemoration of the centenary of that war that not uh, very much comment has been made about that aspect of it. Well, um, Beatrice is going to talk to us for about 45 or 50 minutes, and then we're going to have lots of time for questions and discussion. But before we do that, can I ask you to join me in welcoming our speaker, Beatrice Finn?
1: Stand here. Such a nice room here. Can you all hear me? Uh, thank you so much uh, for that great introduction, and thank you so much to LSE for inviting me here today. Uh, and, of course, to the Ralph Miliband Programme uh, for hosting this... Lecture at such an important time. And the theme of this lecture series uh, this year is generations. How this generation's experiences differ from the last generations. Are there similarities or are there differences? And that's quite a good place to start when you talk about nuclear weapons. Um, and I've found that as I've been traveling the world and speaking at events like this one or doing media appearances, or just lobbying diplomats. Um, People's attitudes to nuclear weapons differ greatly uh, depending on their generation. I don't think that that should surprise us. Um, Who here, for example, has ever had to practice a duck and cover, a drill for a nuclear attack, or as it was known in the UK at that time, the four-minute warning drill? Yeah, one. Four minutes was the approximate time it would take between the detection by the British government of a Soviet missile attack and the moment of impact on London. And during the Cold War, nuclear weapons was often people's number one concern. And a very real and lived threat of complete and unexpected destruction from above sort of lurked in the back of people's minds every single day. As the author William Faulkner described it in his speech, accepting the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1949, there are no longer problems of the spirit. There is only the question, when will I be blown up? And this was the lived experience of that generation. Is there anyone here, aged 73 years or older? I mean, you don't have to answer. If you, don't
0: <laughs>
1: you were alive when the only time that nuclear weapons would be used in warfare, when the U.S. dropped bombs that made the firestorms of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In a survey of Americans, a month after the first use of nuclear weapons in 1945, only 4% of the respondents thought that the weapons should not have been used at all. And by 1998, that number had gone to 26%. In 2010, 22% of Americans said that the U.S. should never use nuclear weapons under any circumstances, even in the response of a nuclear attack. As time passes since the first use of nuclear weapons, people seem to be less inclined to believe that they will be used. Who here is under 30? And your experience uh, is likely much, much different from those who lived through the Cold War. Uh, you have never known the constant eyeball-to-eyeball between two nuclear powers that could explode at any moment. And people under 30 are much less likely to rate nuclear weapons as a top-tier issue than people over 30. But at the same time, 90% of youth in a 2012 survey said that nuclear weapons are inhumane. So, my point is, while each generation agrees on the cruelty and horror of nuclear weapons, It also seems to be an assumption that the problem went away with the end of the Cold War. But here's the real problem. Somehow we actually forgot to get rid of those 15,000 nuclear weapons that still exist. They are still here. So that really brings me to the theme of my lecture, the end of nuclear weapons. Are we closer than ever to ending the nuclear weapons threat? And I will talk something that can be... about something here today that can be found in quite short supply these days, and on, specifically on this issue, optimism. Because while we are at a closer point than any time in the last decades to the, seeing the use of nuclear weapons again, the answer is still yes, despite that we are closer than ever to ending nuclear weapons. So first maybe bear with me as I take you through the bad news. Uh, don't, don't give up hope. Like Once I'm done with that, I'll get to the good stuff. Uh, if one Trident D5 warhead were to fall on this building right now, windows would shatter from cockbusters in the north to Croydon in the south. Around seven, 700,000 people would be killed immediately. Almost 2 million would be injured. And this does not include the people who will die over the coming days, weeks, years and decades from the injuries and the radiation. Would anyone like to guess how many radiation beds there are in U.K. hospitals to treat these hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of victims? 12 Two. <laughs> but really, it wouldn't matter, because in the kind of nightmarish reality for those left behind, no help will be coming. No one would come. No one would help bury the bodies. In Hiroshima, 42 out of 45 hospitals were destroyed. of the doctors and nurses were killed or injured. And in Nagasaki, ground temperatures reached 7,000 Fahrenheit and radioactive rain poured down. Most victims died without any care to ease their suffering. And many who came to help later died from radiation. And those bombs were tiny in comparison to today's weapons. Relief organizations would not be able to send help into a nuclear weapons blast zone. As the International Committee of the Red Cross has stated, there will be no effective means of providing aid to the dying and wounded. And this has also been confirmed by the United United Nations' own relief agencies, who have said that they would have to withdraw staff and could not send anyone into the affected areas. The immediate effects of a nuclear blast would be devastating. Those that don't die in the fires of the initial blast or in the agony of the days following would face, face death for years to come in the form of radiation poisoning, cancers, environmental change, and food scarcity. And recent climate modeling shows that a relatively limited nuclear change involving about 100 nuclear weapons between India and Pakistan would result in a nuclear winter, a lowering of the, of the, the climate uh, temperature, lasting for two to three years. Beyond the, those unacceptable the initial deaths of nuclear weapons used, uh, billions could die from the resulting famine. Our food system would collapse, our societies would likely follow. And the effects of radiation on human beings would cause suffering and death decades after the initial explosion. People in Hiroshima and Nagasaki are still feeling the impact of the bomb. So, I did tell you this was the bad news section. But if we don't make it clear that these weapons, what these weapons do, people will continue them with, to, to sort of attach an aura of power to them, instead of seeing them for what they really are, instruments of sheer horror and terror, meant to destroy cities, mass murder civilians, schools, hospitals, whole cities like the one we are in today. And in difficult times like the one... We are in right now, it can be, seem inappropriate sometimes to talk about hope, progress and even recent success. It can feel like we're covered in darkness and discussing anything else is an act of surrender and normalization of the insanity of this moment. The President of the United States is a reality TV show host who brags about sexual assault and threatens to kill hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of North Korean citizens with nuclear weapons on Twitter. Russia is developing hypersonic missiles to avoid interception, preparing for when these weapons will need to be used. And the UK, France, Russia, the United States, with these weapons of mass destruction stationed across this continent have made Europe the continent with the majority of nuclear weapons on its territory. And far from removing their nuclear weapons, which they have committed to do under the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, New, all nuclear arms states are expanding and updating their massive arsenals. We are right now at the starting point of a new nuclear arms race, with countries prepared to spend trillions of dollars on nuclear weapons, meant to last another 30 to 70 years. If we even make it that long. Earlier this year in January, one million Hawaiians hid in basements, closets, bathtubs after receiving an alert on their phone. Reading in all caps, ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. And this was the same week as Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un threatened to use nuclear weapons. People panicked, and rightly so. But for seven decades, nuclear armed states have threatened to mass murder civilians, have kept their nuclear weapon on high alert, and been prepared to wipe out entire cities in a few minutes. And despite the end of the Cold War, the threat is no less for this generation, even if this generation is less concerned about it. In fact, there are many arguments to suggest that the threat is actually graver right now than during the Cold War. We no longer have two blocs in the world who constantly watch each other and predicting every, each other's move. We have more nuclear arms states than ever. And these states operate in a different, more multipolar world with global, regional, national, local conflicts simultaneously, all of them with the possibility of escalating with global impact. And to add to that, new threats to our security, cyber warfare, fully autonomous weapons, terrorism, organized crime, climate change, migration flows, increasingly complex information for warfare. We have led the most destructive weapon, an incredibly inflexible very unsophisticated, inhumane weapon, which consequences are impossible to contain, continue to exist in a much more complex, automated, rapidly changing world. The risk of nuclear weapons being used, either by intent or accident or sheer misunderstanding, is increasing. Just last week, a U.S. government audit found that the Department of Defense wo- is woefully unprepared for cyber attacks. It found that testers were routinely able to infiltrate and commandeer the weapon system they're testing, all undetected by other testers meant to fend them off. In at least one case, they found the administrative password within seconds by looking it up on the Internet. The DoD had forgotten to change the default password for the system. Oops. The game has changed in the world, but these weapons have not. Every single day that nuclear weapons exist, by the thousands in our seas, in bunkers below us, and in constant alert flying above us, is a day of instability and irrationality. And it matters little if the, usually man, threatening indiscriminate mass murder possesses charismatic speaking abilities like Reagan, or a cool head sophistication like Obama, or is just one tiny tantrum away from launching a nuclear strike like Donald Trump doesn't really matter if the leader of the largest nuclear state is a tyrant like Stalin, a reformer like Gorbachev, or a strong man like Putin. The problem is not the leader, it's the weapon. And while the threat might be exaggerated by a certain leader, it's always there, always grave, and always imminent. So yes, this moment is alarming. But it's no more insane than any other moment we've convinced ourselves that weapons made for the destruction of cities and mass killing of civilians was a key to our collective security. As Pope Francis said while condemning the policy of deterrence last year, how sustainable is a stability based on fear when it actually increases fear and undermines relationships of trust between people? It is not sustainable and we have only survived this consistent threat this long, thanks to luck and a few brave individuals who defied the orders to launch counterattack when faced with false alarms. A security based on fear and sheer luck is no security at all. And it's for all these reasons and more that the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists this year moved the doomsday clock two minutes to midnight, the closest to the use of nuclear weapons than at any point in the last 65 years. So that's the bad news. We're all gonna die in nuclear war. But, and this is the big caveat, only if we keep these nuclear weapons around forever. We do have a choice. Eliminate nuclear weapons or they eliminate us. So Now this is the good news. We are closer than ever to eliminating these weapons and thereby ending the insanity of this mutually assured destruction. One of the problems with the nuclear weapons debate has always been this special authority that we have given nuclear weapons. The license that grants them to circumvent the laws of war on our common humanity. To say mass murder of innocent civilians is never okay, except when at the hands of our mystical geopolitical power stick. But these weapons are just weapons. And as soon as we take them out of the frame of geopolitical security and defense policy, We can see them for what they really are. And this is what the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons have done. We took them out of the frame and put them into a humanitarian one. The humanitarian frame says it's never okay. There is never a geopolitical justification for the murder of millions of innocent civilians. Just as it says there's never a military justification for the use of chemical or biological weapons. These are just weapons. And with these weapons, viewed firmly through a humanitarian lens, ICANN has worked with governments to do something everyone told us was impossible. We ban nuclear weapons. The treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons was adopted at the United Nations in July last year. And since then it's open for signatures. And to date, 69 countries have signed it, 19 have ratified it in their own domestic law. And once 31 more countries ratify it, the treaty that bans nuclear weapons will enter into force and become international law. These weapons will no longer be symbols of power. They will be symbols of shame. The real power of the treaty is its creation of a new norm that rejects nuclear weapons, because it becomes clear that they're heinous, they're shameful, and they have no place in a modern democracy who adheres to international norms around human rights, and the moral and legal prohibitions around targeting civilians in warfare. This is the new standard that we're taking strides towards. This is where we already are having our impact. We are creating the conditions for eliminating nuclear weapons by starting with saying they're unacceptable and illegal. The law is the first step to changing behavior. Norms and our culture, our behavior around these weapons will soon catch up with that. Funding will be cut. Banks will stop financing and politicians will be asked to reject nuclear weapons if they want to be elected. And we have another great force at our disposal that may be equal or even greater than the splitting of the atom, momentum. We can't afford to wait for one leader to rise and change policy. And we can't count on the politicians to get together and choosing sanity and security over fear and instability. And through the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons we have a plan, we have a legal framework, and we have momentum. Though we in this movement, we are optimists, but we're not simply dreamers, we're doers. And we are the realists facing up to the threat of nuclear weapons and formulating a plan to act. Believing that we can keep them indefinitely without them being used is a dream. That is magical thinking. And that is not a solution. So we have been doing. near over 500 organizations and thousands of members ranging from activists, doctors, lawyers, to survivors of nuclear attacks make up our campaign. And we have worked to build a global movement of public opposition to nuclear weapons, uh, reaching across generations. Through, Through these partnerships, we have helped reshape the debate on nuclear weapons into one about humanitarian considerations and we have generated momentum towards their total eradication. And the treaty gives us the tool. It gives us the opportunity to just do that. And more so than simply having nations sign up to the side of rational humanity, the treaty flips the switch on the old nuclear order. With so many nations banning nuclear weapons, what used to be a safe investment bet in a trillion-dollar industry, all of a sudden looks a bit shaky. The treaty bans any sort of support for nuclear weapons, including the manufacture or financial investments in nuclear weapons production. Since 2016, over 30 companies have cut their investments in nuclear weapons producing companies. The trillion dollar government pension fund in Norway has added companies producing nuclear weapons to their exclusion list, including BAE, who runs the Trident missile program here in the United Kingdom. The Dutch public sector pension fund ABP has also divested. That means two of the top five largest pension funds in the world have now divested from nuclear weapons. They are seeing a clear business case against these weapons. And there are other actors gaining momentum from the treaty too, at state and local level around the world. Representing over 38 million Americans, California state legislature recently became the largest local government to support the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And the state follows the lead of LA, Los Angeles City Council, which recently became a part of a wave of local governments rejecting nuclear weapons by voting in favor of the US joining the treaty. And LA joins 10 other municipalities and the US Conference of Mayors who have endorsed similar resolutions and a host of European mayors in in major European capitals will meet soon to discuss doing the same. And these gestures are more than symbolic. As democratic representative bodies, they have a responsibility to reflect the views of their constituencies and to ensure those who represent the nations in international negotiations do so authentically. And these cities are also some of the cities that are targets of nuclear weapons. And this is just one of the ways our movement is bringing democracy to disarmament the opposite of the traditional nuclear playing field where all but a handful of powerful players are allowed to take the field and determine the fate of the world. For decades, a handful of nuclear armed states locked the rest of the world out of their conversations about our shared future. But that changed last year with the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Just as no country is immune to the dangers posed by nuclear weapons, no nation can claim immunity or neutrality from a conflict that involves nuclear armed states. So it is important on each nation and their citizens to seize control over their own destiny before it's taken from them due to geopolitical events they had no part in. And nations are refusing to be passive hostages to the whims of a few men with their finger on the button. And they're doing so by joining the TPNW. And businesses are refusing to back a losing bet by divesting from nuclear producers, and local governments are refusing to be spoken for by speaking up um, for their constituencies. And just as the problem will be felt locally, so the solution must come from the ground up. Rather than waiting for presidents and prime ministers to act, grassroots pressure is bringing democracy to nuclear disarmament in a movement spearheaded by young people by bold politicians, by diplomats and by municipalities, and grounded in the leadership and moral authority of the survivors of nuclear bombings and testing. We know that victory on this issue requires changing the terms of the debate. It requires articulating and acknowledging the humanitarian consequences of any use of nuclear weapons. And that is happening right now. It requires moving from international relations that see all engagements as zero sum as a battle that can only have one winner to one of cooperation and slowly but surely despite what the news tell you that is happening and it requires pricing the actions of many working together over the false promise of the lone savior of wise and serious men huddle away plotting the future of humanity that is happening it requires rejecting the old patriarchal order where threats and dominance is seen as keeping us safe and building a new, lasting security together. And like it or not for those still in power, that is happening. And it requires all of us, citizens, states, cities, corporations, to see ourselves as active stakeholders in a problem, in a problem with no remote corner of the earth will offer shelter from. And that is happening with or without the nuclear-armed states, together we are creating an unstoppable force. And it couldn't come soon enough. Through this moment in history is fragile. It is not hopeless. The majority of countries in the world has for the first time stood up to the nuclear-armed states and said loudly and clearly, enough. We will no longer be held hostage to your weapons. While there are still 15,000 nuclear weapons deployed today, nine countries that possess them, and many more that endorse them by being happy to live under their nuclear umbrella. There are many more countries on our side. Through steps like this and countless others by our partners and allies, we will unlock the global web of chains that bind us to nuclear weapons. We will break down the hidden systems that allow these weapons to exist and expand. And through the treaty, nations are joining, one at a time, We are creating the political, economic and cultural conditions to make the eventual elimination of nuclear weapons inevitable. The desire for life and survival is not a question of generations. That is universal and timeless. The last generations gave us a monstrous gift of science that all of a sudden put the power of all life and death in the hands of a few individuals and the generation after them walked on a tightrope and survived. But as Bertrand Russell said, you may reasonably expect a man to walk a tightrope safely for 10 minutes. It would be unreasonable to do so without accident for 200 years. We are going on 73 years of walking this tightrope, and our time is already running out. So it falls to this generation to choose life over death and destruction, hope over fear, sanity over irrationality and luck. Yes, we are closer to doing that ever than than ever before. But in the game of nuclear tightrope, getting close doesn't matter. Only the elimination of nuclear weapons can assure our safety. We must be hopeful. For the sake of future generations, we cannot let close enough be good enough.
0: Thanks very much. That's really good. Uh, We've got lots of time for questions and and discussions and points, so I'll start by taking people individually. um, Just indicate if you'd like to ask our speaker a question. Okay, and uh, just wait for the microphone to come in, if you could just say, because the whole thing's podcast, who you are and where you're from.
2: Thank you. Thank you for a wonderful presentation. And my question is that nuclear weapons as, as a deterrence, deterrence mechanism or a defense mechanism. And according to the International Court of Justice, the advisory opinion is states, states that um, it is lawful for a state to use nuclear weapons under the extreme self-defense under the vital survival of a state, so uh, in this aspect. um, So according to the international law, it is lawful for some countries to possess nuclear weapons and it seems that it is lawful for them to use nuclear weapons under the extreme uh, extreme self-defense. So how do you think of this obstacle of the, of the abolishment of nuclear weapons. Thank
1: you. Yeah, um, this ICJ opinion uh, has been interpreted very differently by different people. Um, the ICJ recognized that it had difficulty foresee how nuclear weapons could be used uh, in line with the IHL, but they could not rule out that it could be possible in extreme cases of self-defense. Um, This was in 1996, and a lot of things have happened since then, uh, including the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. When that advisory opinion was was written, um, the treaty didn't exist. So now we have a new law that said that any use of nuclear weapons would be illegal. And obviously, this will not bind states that haven't joined the treaty until they either join the treaty or until it's established as customary law, which has a very high threshold, so it's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, but it does add more to, to the case. Uh, I've been debating with some lawyers uh, from nuclear-armed states about how these extreme cases where you could use nuclear weapons in line with international humanitarian law uh, without harming civilians. And they all have this like one example. A warship out on the sea that's just military, that's not what you have 15,000 nuclear weapons for. Like, there aren't 15,000 of those warships, there's seven. Um, The. Oh, now I can't remember exactly how much. I think that each Trident submarine carries with it uh, something like 70 Hiroshima's. Under what circumstances will that be justified? Um, you can also, of course, um, say that in extreme self-defense, you can murder someone. Does that mean the murder should be legal? No. Uh, I think that the extreme self-defense case is not where we put the bar and the norm. And what really is is the issue here is that all the nuclear armed states have plans and preparations. They're actively exercising, planning, practicing to use these weapons. And they are going to be used on, on cities, and civilian targets. That's the, that's the reality. Uh, they, of course, always say that uh, they're only for deterrence. But deterrence only works if you're actually prepared to do it. If you're not prepared to do it, then deterrence doesn't work. Uh, so I think that we have to. when they say that they are ready to use nuclear weapons, when Trump says, if you come at me, I'll blow us all up, we should take that seriously. That's what they mean. When they say that, they mean it. Uh, military planners have this weapon at their disposal. They are making plans and are prepared to use them. Uh, it's not a theoretical exercise, it's a real weapon.
0: Okay, uh, this uh, woman at the front, please. Just just wait for the microphone, and if you could say who you are and where you're from, that would be good. Yeah.
2: Thank you so much for your, uh, your words. Uh, my name is Lily. I'm from the United States. And my question is, it was mentioned that you've done research on gender and disarmament. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role women have played in disarmament activism. Uh, why you think women have been so active and passionate about this cause and what we do to get men and others to join us?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, I was just talking earlier um, that I've, I've talked about gender and nuclear weapons for quite a while. And most people were like, well, everyone's going to die. It's not a gender thing. Why are you making this a gender thing? And then Trump tweets, my button is bigger than yours. And he's, everyone's like, oh, yeah, I kind of see that it's a gender thing. <laughs> um, obviously, war impacts people differently. Um, and the consequences of warfare uh, has specific consequences. For example, we see in Hiroshima and Nagasaki on, around the nuclear test sites that women have female survivors have had different consequences. Women take up much more radiation, in particular for our reproductive system, meaning that women in the, in the Pacific, in Kazakhstan, where Soviet tested, uh, in, around in Nevada, for example, where the US tested, um, have serious problems with stillborn babies, giving birth to children with different diseases, miscarriages, infertility, um, speaking to survivors from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, they were cast as dirty. They they were ashamed for where they're from and didn't want. To, you know they were um, not pure. Uh, and in 1950s Japan, that was not being able to marry, for example, was hugely stigmatizing for a woman. So many of them lied, had to lie. So this was a social stigma. Uh, so and I think that those kind of things are not things that we are considering so much for nuclear weapons. And if you add the fact also that women have, in large, been excluded from decision-making around nuclear weapons, and the kind of conversation about um, should we have these weapons or should we not have these weapons have excluded uh, women's perspective. I don't think that women are more peaceful, but I think that women often are the caretakers and the community builders in societies, it's just traditional roles that we've had, have been assigned and therefore have another perspective on weapons. Our um, perspective is much more the sort of aftermath uh, of of using a weapon rather than the kind of pre-stages. So I I think it's extremely relevant and as in many social movements, um, it's those without power that have protested loudly against those with power, and obviously women have been in a, mar- in a, in a group that has been disempowered throughout history, uh, and have been a huge part of the anti-nuclear movement. Doesn't mean that there aren't equally many men, but I think it, it gives another, It has different um, a different aspect on it.
0: Okay, so now we've got a good number of questions. I'll... Several,
1: maybe. It's I, I speak good. too long.
0: No, you're right. Well, we might move to that in a minute, but I'll just keep going with singles for a minute. Um, At the back, the gentleman at the back, please.
2: Can you give us a flavour of uh, the politics in Europe? Uh, So uh, most uh, European countries don't have uh, nuclear weapons, but they host uh, uh, nuclear weapons. And uh, Europe was uh, created, um, the Union was created... uh, uh, with the goal of peace. Uh, so then, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the Netherlands seems to be the only country that uh, is, uh, uh, is in the process of ratifying the, the treaty. Uh, what uh, Can you give us a flavor of uh, how uh, politically uh, the European Union could be- become a, um, a supporter of the treaty?
1: Yeah, I think that the... Um The situation in Europe is quite interesting. It's a continent that prides itself of being supportive of human rights, IHL. You know, it's democracy and openness, but yet uh, the majority of European countries, not all of them, are uh, under the nuclear umbrella through NATO. And their military is involved in the plans and preparations to use nuclear weapons. Their militaries are training, sort of the German military is training to drop nuclear weapons on cities. Uh, You have countries like Norway, which this question is extremely uncomfortable for them. And for a very long time, they have been able to hide behind the nuclear armed states and say that we're not the ones with nuclear weapons. Uh, This treaty has really put a spotlight on their kind of hypocrisy. Uh, It's easy to say that North Korea shouldn't have nuclear weapons, and they are awful. But if Norway can't be safe without nuclear weapons, how can we expect North Korea to have a higher standard of human rights law and IHL. Um, but again, I think it, it doesn't, it's not because they don't believe in human rights and IHL. It's because we have disconnected nuclear weapons from reality. We don't see it as uh, it's, it's a political weapon. It's just something that we, we do in NATO, and is allowed to question it. Uh, and, we, and when we started prodding Politicians. I met the Prime Minister of Norway, for example. I'm just taking Norway as an example. Uh, it's obvious how incredibly uncomfortable, as a politician, she was talking about how they are participating in plans and preparations to mass murder civilians. It's like, no, we're not, but your military is part of these missions with nuclear weapons. Well, it's just an alliance, like trying to sort of hide it under someone else's responsibility. And I think that that's the, the key here to, to realise who is complicit in nuclear weapons and who accepts it and facilitates the nuclear armed states and in in the end, you know, allows for countries like North Korea to say, Hey, you're doing it, I want it too. If it's so important if Norway needs protection from nuclear weapons, you know, we feel pretty threatened, we need it too. So I think that the, the treaty has definitely put a spotlight on that and um, it's the, the NATO states of the European Union have been um, both rejecting it on their own but also bullied by nuclear-armed members of NATO United States, France and the UK very much pressure on, on the other NATO states to not join this treaty there are EU countries of course so EU is split so you have countries like Ireland and Austria that were like the champion states they were the first to sign this treaty they were be part of the development of this um, you, and, and a couple of other you have countries like Sweden for example that's you know, in the middle very closely connected to NATO but not an official NATO member uh, so there's a little wobbling right now. Should we sign? Should we not sign? The U.S. is really angry with us. Oh, scary stuff. I'm Swedish, so that's I'm um, But, yeah, so it, it really puts, it puts their kind of um, actions on the spotlight. Uh, which countries are prepared to use weapons of mass destruction? And which countries aren't? Uh, and I think that that's... Uh, Getting getting these states to say no isn't always a bad thing. It's also the first stage to changing their position is to get them to admit it and to get the people in these countries to like, wait, what? Why why are we supporting weapons of mass destruction? That doesn't make any sense. Um, I'm never... Sort of, I I don't stop being astounded when they talk about chemical weapons. Even the UK government, this awful, horrific weapon—I can't believe someone would use it. But yeah, we're totally prepared to wipe out entire cities with nuclear weapons, and that's just rational and stable and powerful. It's—it's you know—it's because we we don't see it as a weapon almost. It's—it's a symbol of something. So for us, it's important to take it down down to the practical level
2: become an
1: issue at the next European elections? Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, you asked about the EU. So yes, absolutely. There was a, a resolution in the European Parliament um, a year ago, a year and a half ago, supporting uh, the negotiations and calling on all EU states to participate. And that was adopted in the European Parliament. So there's a lot of public support in the EU. And we will be working uh, with our partner organizations across the EU to make this an issue for the election and make politicians that are running in the EU election uh, next year take a stand on this so definitely it can be it can be an issue
0: Okay um, can we have this woman in the front row please
3: Thank you Hi I'm Nicole I'm from Scotland again thank you so much for coming to speak to us. I just wanted to ask if you could speak a little about the role that language plays in all of this both in terms of the popular discourses that distance the nuclear weapons from the devastating impact Mm. that we have played and also in terms of the treaty itself because I know the language used there is very deliberate so I was wondering if you could elaborate on that.
1: Absolutely I think this you know in a way I feel like someone should do like a big academic study maybe LSE you can do this Uh, about the language around nuclear weapons it's like the biggest marketing thing ever how they managed to Turn this weapon into something that, that is powerful and safe and stable. And when you actually look at it, it it's crazy. It's insane. It's like a, a giant suicide vest that we all put on voluntarily and just accept it. It's, it, it's insane. And, and the, the way we talk about them is extremely, it, it really puts a spotlight on that. You talk, for example, in the UK, the government won't even say it's weapons, it's a nuclear deterrent. And that's very intentional. The, this thing, these boats, deters nuclear weapons. They are nuclear weapons. They don't, like they are weapons meant to be used. And you know, you, you, they use that kind of language, also um, using very complex terms, uh, making it extremely difficult, very far removed. Uh, this is not, you know, this is about global stability, geopolitics. You as an individual can't possibly understand. It's way over your head. Trust us. Uh, These are giant radioactive bombs. They're not special. They're not magic. They're not even advanced technology. They're 1945 technology. They're getting really, really old. Um, You know, the military is developing into this kind of high-tech, fully autonomous, algorithm-based weapons. They are moving quite far away from nuclear weapons. Very few actual military mission that it would make any sense to use nuclear weapons, even if there's an existential threat, as we talked about before. Uh, even if North Korea would use nuclear weapons against, say, uh, the United States, they would have much more effective ways to, to respond to that, that isn't nuclear. Um, it, it, it may, it, it's just a prestige thing. So they've built up, they even call it, you know, and we, we use this language without thinking about it, nuclear powers. Not powers. It's not powerful. We never say, oh, the chemical weapons power Syria. You wouldn't say it like that. So I think what we're doing is try to reverse that by, by focusing. And I, I very intentionally say I don't, I don't use the word deterrence. I use threatening to mass murder civilians because that's what deterrence is, right? Deterrence means that I'm prepared to wipe out your cities, uh, so let's call it that. And you can see when you debate with people that they flinch ooh, it's uncomfortable. Well, why are you saying that? That's not actually what we do. We're just deterring. It feels much more clean and neutral and safe and, and reasonable and logic. Of course, we want to deter war, right? That's, that's sane. We don't want to mass murder civ- threaten to mass murder civilians. So I think that we can use language to our advantage. Um, and obviously, as civil society, it's extremely difficult to have the same... PR impact as the most powerful, richest countries in the world, so it's kind of a David and Goliath thing in terms of language use. But with the Nobel Peace Prize, for example, we have been given a platform, and our, our voices are heard now. For example, in a much more better way. So that now we have, we're going to use that to bring these messages and raise the the, the humanitarian consequences. Talk about the the number of radiation beds. Talk about the impact on women. Um, and and, and to use that to help change the discourse.
0: Great. Now, I'm conscious I've been taking people from over here. So can I... uh, The gentleman in the pink shirt.
3: Hi. My name is Cyrus. I'm from India. Firstly, thank you very much for the talk. And as we've alluded to in some of the questions before, and the concept of nuclear weapons is very firmly tied in with the concept of power... And so, therefore, I have two questions, if you don't mind. Both relate to essentially the power of the international community. One to deal with economic matters, and one to deal with national security matters. So, the first question would be: Is that the countries that possess the nuclear weapons are basically the company? Sorry, countries with the largest economic clout in the world. So, how could the other countries that do not have them effectively um, sort of? put pressure on them economically when many of them are dependent on economic structures and systems that are essentially run by, say, the US, China, uh, India. Um, the second one, which deals with power related to national security, is, to take the example of India and Pakistan, is that how can the international community essentially put pressure on them to forget their short-term national security interest when that same pressure hasn't worked for, to get them to sign the non-proliferation agreement? Mm. Thank you.
1: Yeah, uh, it's, it's really interesting. So the countries with nuclear weapons, it's no accident they're the most powerful. And I think that's how injustice works. Like the people with power and, and who has all the means are the ones who dictate. And that's how dictatorships work. And what works is to uh, get the majority of people to rise up and take a stand. And throughout this campaign, I've, I've thought a lot about power. And how, you know, you have some things like economic power, it's fixed, you know, number of war planes and stuff, it's fixed. So economic and military power, you have that. But in a way, power is much more than that. It's also very abstract, and it's, you, can, you can be given power, and it can be taken away from you just if people don't believe in you. In a way, I feel like nuclear weapons are a little bit like the emperor's new clothes. If you don't believe them anymore, their power is quite, it's removed. If you don't think that they are scary, or impressive, or threatful, if you don't respect them, then what you have is nuclear armed states ending up with really expensive radioactive bombs on their own territory that they can't use. It's just like, ooh, not a good idea. So what we can do is we can use the majority of countries in the world to rise up as any injustice. They can only do that if we let them. Um, Men have been the most powerful, or more powerful than women. And women had enough and demanded that their right to vote. Didn't wait for the men to give it to them. They just demanded it and, and rose up and forced it. Civil rights, same thing. Um, I, I think that this issue is, I got into this issue not because I was interested in nuclear weapons, but I was interested in justice and equality. Um, and just seeing how this is another struggle for justice and equality, just like civil rights, women's right to vote, you know, anti-slavery, anti-apartheid. A very small group of white South Africans held all the power. They were the, they were the richest. They had the access to the weapons. But the people around, when they had enough, they said no. And that's how revolutions happen, right? So what we're doing with the treaty is kind of an international revolution. Uh, we're, the, we're getting the majority of countries in the world to stand up and say, no, we're not going to be complicit anymore. And you don't, we don't accept your power over us in this issue. Uh, and in the terms of sort of how to convince countries, um, I think a, b- a big part of the the problem with the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is a treaty, if there's people that don't, it's all these treaties, language to make it confusing for people, um, that it's, it, it agrees that no one should develop n- nuclear weapons, no new state should develop nuclear weapons, and the five recognized nuclear weapon states should disarm in the future. So that's Russia, China... Uh, UK, France, and the United States. And they see that a little bit as legitimization. They are legitimate nuclear powers. And then you have India and Pakistan, who's like, wait, why do you get to have them? And we don't. Uh, We don't agree with that. And, of course, Israel, who just like, maybe we have, maybe we don't, we're not saying anything. Everyone knows they have. Uh, And then North Korea, who's also wants nuclear weapons now, or have nuclear weapons. Um, So, in a way, that treaty is... Uh, what India and Pakistan argues is that it's, you know, like nuclear apartheid, right? Two, two different rules for two different countries, and they want to be on the same status. Um, the five states in the MPT says, no, you can't. So we kind of accept them outside the treaty as nuclear-armed states, but we don't. It's a bit sort of vague, and it's the same thing with North Korea now. Uh, they finally got nuclear weapons, and what happens, you kind of... They're forced to recognize it. You know, they had a big summit with flags and handshakes and PR and, you know, very, you know, give them power. So it shows also how how vulnerable we are for an international community. North Korea was the – it's not that hard to get nuclear weapons. If the poorest country in the world, the least developed country in the world can do it, you know, anyone could. So we can't prevent countries, actually, that really, really want it. We have to work with the intention. But how to solve the – you know, obviously, there needs to be a, um, a recognition in India and Pakistan is that they can't use nuclear weapons without harming themselves. Uh, the two countries are so close that any impact will cross over the border. You can't, they don't respect borders, nuclear weapons. They don't respect generations. They will continue to impact future generations. So that there is very little you, can, you can't actually use them. And what you can always argue is that developing nuclear weapons is, has led to huge tensions, uh, very, very close to war, that it actually fuels conflict rather than solves it. Right. Um,
0: perhaps this um, person here just wait for the yeah. Wonderful. I'm a graduate of this international relations department at the University um, you, what I was reading about the quantities that, uh, you haven't actually referred to the quantities, I'll ask about this Russia and America have most more than anybody else even though Russia now is no longer a superpower I understand it actually has numerically more nuclear weapons than the United States they're the two states obviously with the most, if you could confirm that am I right or wrong in saying that and then other states have a smaller amount. Britain, of the initial nuclear weapon states, probably has the least, actually has a few less than France. If you could say anything about the numbers that the nuclear weapon states possess.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the U. The U.S. and Russia are the by far the biggest nuclear states. They hold over 90% of the world's arsenals. I think that the U.S. has around 6,800. Six, they're not really super transparent with the actual numbers, but it's estimated around 6,800. Russia has around 7,000. And then you have a huge drop down to um, France, UK, and the US, which I think are around between 200 and and 300, the three of them each. Um, But we're talking still... um, I think if the UK, I think that the active war is 180. Is that? A, it feels like a number that rings a bell in my head, but I'm sure there's someone here who knows better than me it's the exact number. Um, on the Trident submarines, and, and 180. Uh, in Hiroshima, uh, 80,000 people died. Um, from, from one, and these weapons are bigger than that. So 180 you know, bombs bigger than Hiroshima. It's an insane amount of power, Uh, and just again to sort of like it's it's so hard to grasp these numbers sometimes. Um, But what we say is that there's on a a U.S. submarine, nuclear armed submarine. uh, There's the equivalent of all the firepower of World War II. If you think about that, not just Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but all the all the firepower of the entire World War II on one American nuclear submarine, there's seven times that. And they have ten patrolling constantly. And that's not the missile silos, that's not the airplanes, that's ten, I mean, that's 70 World War IIs patrolling from the United States. And then you have the Russians, and then you have the airplanes and the missile silos, and the French and the British and the Chinese, and the, you know, it's, it's insane amount of power. It's insane amount of firepower, not power as in the power we talked before.
0: Okay, I am going to start taking them in twos um, because there's quite a number of people who want to get in. So um, this um, in the grey sort of sweatshirt, yeah. Just yeah.
4: Uh, hello, and uh, thank you very much for coming here. I'm just wondering whether uh, I would like your thoughts on this statement, if that's fine. Uh, nuclear weapons compensate for conventional military inferiority and moderate against the use of force by one great power against another if military assets were limited to conventional weapons, nations would experience fewer inhibitions against armed conflict, with disincentives to conflict reduced the renewal of conventional arms races would likely be unstoppable the problem lies not in the weapons but in the nature of humankind so I'm just wondering what your thoughts are mm. in regards to that.
0: Yeah. Thank you. I, I thought yeah. for a minute you wanted your essay, some notes for your essay. It, it sounded like... Um, let, let me just take a second one because there are quite a few people. Um, uh, yeah, this person with the glasses, please. Yep, you, you, you with the glasses um, and the blue shirt. Yep. Actually, I have um, a follow-up question for the... Um, for just I'm say gonna... who you are and so on, too. Um, yep. Um, I'm Ignatius. Um, Thank you for the talk and um, I have a follow-up question from the previous one which um, is about, not the, the problem is not lies, does not lie in the weapon but lies in the human nature. So we do live in the world that is um, post-fall therefore as much as i like to believe in the goodness, the love, the kindness of human beings where we still have the concupiscence compu- ah, sorry, concupiscence towards sin um, towards pride, towards power and how do we deal with the fact that while the nuclear weapons can it is possible for them to be abolished, but the technology to make them cannot be uninvented. Right, well, there's mm-hmm. something to be getting on with.
1: Um. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. both of these things are, are arguments that we face quite, quite often. Um, I think it's important to remember that the vast majority of countries in the world do not have nuclear weapons and do not feel the need to have them. And that's quite important because I think that we, we create this sense that They're special, but why does uh, a country like Norway need to be protected by nuclear weapons when a country like Sweden doesn't? Uh, Why does the UK need nuclear weapons but Ireland doesn't? Uh, What threat is so grave to France, an existential threat, that a country like Lebanon doesn't? Um, why are you know? So I think it's a lot about sort of these perceptions. Um, of course, you can argue that they compensate for conventional weapons, but I also think there is a danger of making a hypothetical. They are very unusable. There's this brilliant um, yes, Prime Minister, you know, on the TV show. All you know, there's this brilliant scene where they have this debate about nuclear weapons, and I probably wouldn't use them, and the Russians probably know that. Well, they probably know, but they. they they don't actually know so they probably can think so they keep going back and forth Um, we can argue that you know NATO is protected against Russia for example with American nuclear weapons would Donald Trump risk nuclear war with Russia to save Lithuania would American citizens be okay with having New York Washington LA wiped out to protect the country they probably can't even put on the map I don't know. It's all hypothetical. These kind of, like, they are very unusable in warfare, which also the opponents probably know. Um, are they actually going to use them, or can we, you know, we, they, they went into Ukraine. Mm, it's fine. Push a little bit more. So it, it's very hypothetical. And also the argument, then, that, that you know, they, they are so stable, then if, if this compensates for conventional war and it keeps the peace, why, why do we have a problem with nuclear weapons? Why don't we all have them? Why don't we encourage everyone to have them? If it's so peaceful and stability-creating and wonderful, then why do we make all those efforts to stop others from having it? Wouldn't it be world peace if everyone had a big nuke in the basement? Um, and the same thing with the human nature. Like, it's very much, It's quite similar to the American gun debate, right? The problem isn't the weapon. The problem is the people. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. It's the sort of logical argument. All facts and science shows that if you have weapons in your home, you and your family are more likely to get injured. But it feels safe. It feels like this safety blanket. We forget that it's actually a huge liability and a huge, huge, huge threat. And it's just a perception that we have. And we make all these rational arguments around it to. to to get to that perception. And I always find it quite funny that we are being cast by pro-nuclear weapon people as you know, naive, emotional, and actually the, the pro-nuclear weapons people are the most emotional, kind of attached. It's a feeling, I feel safe. It's like this kind of teddy bear that I'm cuddling, although it's radioactive. But this kind of sort of logic and sense doesn't really come into it. Um, so I think it's, it's important to unpack those things. Um, I mean, a chemical weapon could also be cheaper than conventional weapons. Um, that, that doesn't make it more logical or, or sane. And same thing with the technology issue that, you know, we, we can't uninvent un- nuclear weapons. And that's true, you can't, but things change. Uh, things that we, we used to do, we no longer do. We used to have slaves. We don't do that anymore. We used to torture people. We don't do that anymore. I mean, people still do that in parts of the world. I'm not dismissing that. But just like, you know, norms change things. Just because things are possible doesn't mean that we do it. We evolve. We have human rights law. We have laws against war. Human nature, um, we still banned landmines because of their impact on civilians. We banned uh, chemical weapons, biological weapons. We banned cluster munitions. We have made those progresses because we no longer saw the military value. Uh, that, that compensated the humanitarian harm that it did because most governments actually want to protect its people. Uh, not all, but most. So I think it's really important to see it much more as a, a progressive development of international law. Uh, we have made huge developments in terms of developing protection of civilians and the loss of war and human rights this last 60, 70 years. Uh, nuclear weapons is being you know, sort so of forgotten, and now we're dragging it along with the other weapons. So rather than seeing it as uh, the country with the last nuclear weapons would be ruling the world, uh, we don't <clears> see it as powerful. It's not actually a, uh, a valuable weapon in the end. Once we stigmatize it and see them for what they really are, they're much more of a liability, very expensive, very clumsy, doesn't scare anyone, and is uh, impossible to use. So it's it's all about changing the perceptions of the weapon and how, how we see it.
0: Right. Um, this side of the room is so much more vigorous than this side of the room. Um, <laughs> yep, the, the person with glasses there first,
3: please. Um, I'm Louis. I study IR here at LSE. And I wanted to ask, you were saying that it's impossible to prevent the proliferation of nuclear weapons. If you can't prevent the proliferation, what would keep a regime like the North Koreans from disrespecting the norm that the prohibition treaty would set up, as you said, um, if they already had no problem disrespecting the norms that the NPT would set (coughs) up?
1: Yeah, that's a oh sorry. No, no you go ahead. I mean, <laughs> sorry. It's fair enough. Yeah. Um Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So international law, I mean it's obviously limited. There's no world police that puts you in prison if you violate it. So it it makes international law a imperfect tool, but it is what we have and it is what, what we have to use internationally. And it is working in many ways. Um I think that sometimes on the on the on weapons issue we see One exemption to the rule, and we think that was all for nothing. I've had people say that you can't talk about how great the chemical weapons prohibition was because of Syria. Uh, Almost like they would say that if we kept it legal, we would have seen less chemical weapons use. I mean, it doesn't really work like that. Also, you know, there will always be violations and people kind of deviating from the norm, but the norm is there, Um, and setting the norm is the first step to trying to drag countries towards that. Um, we know the norms work. It does change behavior, uh, even with the countries that don't join the treaties always. Uh, it's not always straightforward, and they're not always admitting it. In terms of landmines and cluster munitions, I've heard a lot of analysts like, well, we, they were already on their way out. We weren't actually liking them anyway that much. You know, so the treaty didn't matter so much. But it's part of a a societal shift right? in in how we see things. We see, even with non-democratic states, that, for example, Russia, who um, did not participate in the negotiation of the cluster munitions prohibition, did not sign the treaty, refuses to acknowledge it as a norm, do send them to Syria right now and have them being used, which is devastating for civilians there, but hides it they had this, we saw there was this footage on, on Russian TV where you could see cluster bombs being, and they immediately took it down and replaced it with images without them because they know it's not really acceptable. Why are they creating lies about chemical the chemical attack here in the UK? Why are they having this disinformation thing? Because they know it's not really acceptable. They're not proud of it. They have to hide it. So it doesn't mean that it works perfectly uh, or that they wouldn't do it, but it does sort of keep them... Uh, it, it does shift expectations on them, which is the first step to make it and stop it. And in terms of the NPT, why this would work better than the MPT in terms of containing or changing North Korean behavior, it is because it doesn't give exceptions to powerful states. Um, North Korea says, I, I want to do what they do. I mean, this is a classic for anyone who has kids. You know, kids do what they you do, not what you say. So the nuclear weapon states can say, you can't develop nuclear weapons. And then in the next press, they say, if we get rid of our nuclear weapons, we're doomed. Like We need to have them to feel safe. The UK needs to have them to feel safe. I mean, North Korea is watching that. They're listening. They're learning. Their arguments for their nuclear weapons are exactly the same as the UK's. Exactly. So what this treaty does is that it, nobody should have them and there's no exception for anyone no matter the skin color of the country, no matter the religion of the country no matter the economic status of the country uh, no one, they are inhumane and Im- immoral so it's, it's, yeah, it's not possible to um, really stop a country if they absolutely want to but you can put a lot of pressure on them uh, and I think that that's also what we see with the United States and North Korea right now how the US can like, eh, okay let's accept them they're one of us now. They're part of the big boys club, uh, which is the 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 whole problematic situation where you're trying to keep what you have, but not let other people have it. It's not sustainable in the end. Okay.
0: Um, yep. I think you've had your hand up for a while. Just just wait for the. Just change the questions. Well, oh, that's. What did I say? <laughs> I was going to ask precisely about the point about chemical weapons and the fact that they've been uh, mm. banned and yet, but they are still being used but uh, I'll, ch- I'll change tack a little bit and say once you've disbanded the club and, and there are no weapons which I hope for the sake of my children I hope you, you, you uh, succeed in that um, what does define the pecking order at that point you know if there isn't mutually assured destruction what makes America or Russia or China or, or the UK powerful anymore how do you convince rogue states not to do that if you haven't got something to ultimately threaten them with?
1: Yeah, I think one of the important things of, of ICANN is that we're not an anti-war campaign or anti-military. Uh, many of our partner organizations are. So that will, you know, they will do that kind of work on other weapons and stuff like that. But for I can is very much for the reasoning behind the the treaty is the protection of civilians in warfare. And looking at so, what we're not advocating for ending the military or ending defense, national defense. Uh, I I personally strongly believe that, for example, a country like the United States is unmatched in its conventional capacity. If there is one country that. Absolutely does not need nuclear weapons it's the United States. They have so many weapons. you know no one else could touch them in terms if, if there 's a war in that way so i don 't see that as a barrier uh, for nuclear weapons in, in, in fact they quite it 's worrying if countries rely too much on nuclear weapons because they 're so practical and difficult or impossible to use and Absolutely, and I think that that's why for the United States, if I was the United States, I would totally get rid of my nuclear weapons and then push the other ones to do it because that would be sort of beneficial for me. But I think, but I think it's again this this part of uh, it's not about not having war or not having conflict or not being even even deterred. Uh, as in unconventional sense, and have a defense that would make it unattractive for countries to go to war with you. It's about not having weapons that indiscriminately harm civilians, uh, that, that sort of target civilians, in a way. Uh, to not really put uh, the, the, your population as a human shield. I mean, that's basically what nuclear arms states are doing. They're putting up their own population as a human shield. Uh, to to sort of prevent warfare, which is also illegal under international humanitarian law, just to make the point. Um, so yeah, it's 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 for us. It's, it's basically to see nuclear weapons as one, uh, just just another weapon in your arsenal. And this particular weapon, it has consequences for civilians that are inappropriate to use. So you should not have it.
0: Okay. Yes, this lady at the front.
3: Hi, um, thank you for coming here. Um, I really appreciate how thorough your understanding
1: of how the current um, power structures work and how those social norms are able to influence those who are, can be affected by social norms. But I want to pose the question: what about the, what about the people who act outside of these social norms, especially non-state actors that you can't, that the treaty isn't capable of affecting? What I mean by this is basically like terrorists. <laughs> like, how can you regulate? Um, nuclear weapons and prevent them from using it because the risk that nuclear weapons poses is still incredible, mm. incredible and the risk to civilians is still really really big so yeah absolutely and 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 to to be frankly i mean this is a weapon for terrorists this is weapons for people that want to cause maximum damage to civilians and cause chaos and havoc it's not a uh, a weapon you use in line with the laws of war. It's something when you just want to blow, off, blow things up, just like terrorists do. Uh, in that way, it is a perfect weapon for terrorists, uh, which is extremely scary. It is still very – I said earlier that it's easy for a state to do it. It's quite difficult for non-state actors to do it. It's, it's not that easy, given the uranium enrichment plans that you have to have. But there's, of course, been concerns about stolen material. Um, and, you know, for states, for example, they also need to develop delivery systems because you don't want to just have a bomb but not have it be delivered somewhere else. Um, that's the whole point, somewhere else, <laughs> they use it somewhere else. Um, for non-state actors, they don't care about that. They can have it on them because they can blow up themselves. That's, that's what some of them do. Um, but it is, it's not... But experts have looked at how a sort of terrorist network, for example, could get access to this. It's still more likely that it's being used by a a state, by the nine states that have them, than a terrorist attack with nuclear weapons. It doesn't mean that it will never happen. Uh, I think the more nuclear weapons there are in the world, the more states that have them, the more the risk is that something gets stolen, something gets lost. We have many examples Um, both on accidents and misunderstandings and, you know, where the world has been extremely close to nuclear war. I don't know if you heard about Stanislav Petrov, the man who saved the world, this Russian missileer who now I think is a false alarm, so I'm going to disobey order, the incoming missiles that he got on his computers, um, and thereby didn't fire back. But they've also lost nuclear weapons. Uh, for example they loaded up by mistake a nuclear bomb on a plane at the US military just a few years ago and had it sort of go halfway around the world before someone was like wait wait, what's on that plane uh, they lost one, uh, dropped a bomb in, uh, in North Carolina I think, from a plane in the 50s um, and it had four safety pins pigs, like metal pigs that kept it from exploding three of them broke so, like, the reason why we have two Carolinas still is a little three-centimeter-long metal, three metal peg uh, in that bomb. Um, they dropped drop one in the sea outside the coast of Spain uh, in the 70s. So there's been a lot of these kind of things, accidents. Uh, obviously, the fall of Soviet raised a huge concern about where the weapons are, uh, who's in charge of them. Uh, there were weapons in Ukraine, in Kazakhstan, in Belarus when the Soviet fell that needed to get back uh, to Moscow uh, for, you know, handed by soldiers that didn't get paid, that didn't, you know, so there was a lot of concerns. There's been a lot of work done, by, in particular by the United States, to secure material in Russia, they've helped with a lot of development projects of like that. But as long as they exist, there's always the risk. Uh, so the way that you prevent non-state actors from getting access to them is to eliminate them. Um, we know uh, the United, we know the most about the United States in terms of accidents and mishaps because they are the most transparent. Uh, we know a little bit about the u k but not as much as in the u s there 's much less transparency here. Uh, we have this nuclear convoy that goes uh, through the u k with, with nuclear weapons on and and it could be a terrorist attack on one of them. it could be a terrorist attack on a nuclear weapons base, for example as well uh, so it 's definitely the more Weapons we have, the, and the longer we have them, you know, the higher the chances are that someone will take advantage of that.
0: Okay, I think um, this time I will take two because Sorry. we're. Um, no, 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 you're, you're absolutely <laughs> fine. So um, let's just see who wants to ask questions because we're, we're coming close to the end. So um, the, the gentleman in the orange, and then I, I think it's you. Oh, actually, we've got three. Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Oliver. Um, I was just wondering, I, I don't think it would be too cynical to say that countries do just ignore international law. So the classic example, maybe Resolution
2: 465 banning uh, settlements in the West Bank, and then like a more modern example, Guantanamo Bay. And I was wondering, do you think there needs to be a change in how the international community governs international law to make the ban truly effective?
0: Okay, so we'll keep that on in mind. Um, just wait for the thing, and then who you are and so
2: on. Hi, uh, thank you very much uh, for everything you're saying. Um, my question is quite simple, I believe, is we've been talking of how we would deal, deal with nuclear weapons nowadays and in the future. How would you deal with the knowledge of the nuclear weapon in the sense, like, the scientific uh, papers, basically, like, the paper saying how you'd build one, because there are some, I mean, mm-hmm. quite everywhere. How would you, like, deal with it, first of all, now nowadays, and then in the future, in case disarming disarming, uh, nuclear weapons happens?
0: So what are you going to do about 3D printers? And and lastly, um, Mary.
4: Thank you very much. And, um, you know, I think it's a brilliant achievement, the treaty uh, that got through the General Assembly. I suppose I just really wanted to ask you about activism and the paradox, really, that the most, the periods of great anti nuclear activism have been periods of extreme fear. And I don't, you know, you mentioned activism now, but I just don't see it. I don't see it in the nuclear weapons powers. And even if the doomsday clock, which I think is correct, given North Korea has moved two minutes to midnight. People just don't feel that way. I mean, for me, the most paradoxical thing is this: is here in Britain, going ahead with Trident, which is hugely expensive, uh, which now can be identified. It's no longer secret, because with drones, you can tell where they are in the sea, and you can follow them around. So it's completely useless. It's not independent, and yet nobody's questioning it, almost at all, except a few of us oldies. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Uh, yeah. On the norm side, um, one of the main challenges, of course, is countries violating norms, and the rest of the international community is silent. Um, and in many of these in, uh, issues, it's like they have very the powerful countries kind of either, you know, supported the violations or just, like, don't want to look at it, don't want to talk about it, you know, for other reasons. Um, I mean, we see that with Saudi Arabia now, just this week, uh, very clearly. Um, So in one way, obviously... The U.S. Security Council needs to change as well. I mean, this kind of structure that five countries have this power over international law and norms and, you know, gets to things. But at the same time, I don't think that we can wait for that. I think that we need to be loud when norms are being violated. And uh, We need to pressure the supportive governments to take action because what we've noticed with just this one – Having all these governments, even though they're like powerless on the nuclear weapons issue, small Pacific Island states, African countries, uh, you know, countries like Liechtenstein, you know, these like not big players on the world stage. But when they unify and talk very loudly about this, uh, it changes things. So I think that we need to we learn very quickly to work with the friends and to empower the friends. And I think that, that we see that on other social movements such as um, the fight against sexism, for example. Uh, it's not just the, the rapists. It's the people that laugh at the jokes. It's the people with casual sort of discrimination that are enabling these worse offenders, in a way. Maybe the jokes aren't a crime, but it still needs to be stopped to enable the people that discriminate against women, that enables the people that rapes women, for example. Like, so it's this kind of like layers of, of people. So I think that uh, it's the same thing with racism. It's not just Ku Klux Klan that's a problem, right? It's, it's the small things as well. So working with those kind of outer circles is actually quite important for social norms to, to develop and to make it difficult. I mean, what, part of this treaty is to make it really difficult to have nuclear weapons so that you change the calculation of is it worth to have them or not, uh, when it becomes a problem every single meeting, when it becomes a problem for the companies that produce them that they can't get loans from their bank, from banks, they can You know, people are, you know, boycotting uh, Honeywell's air conditioners because they also produce nuclear missiles. You know, these kind of things. When it starts to become a burden, that's when it changes. Uh, so we have to be much. Much better at highlighting when people violate norms and then be really, really loud about it and, and demand from the people that don't violate the norms to speak out, which is tough for countries. It's hard to speak out against powerful interests. Um, but sort of this power in numbers on those kind of things. On the knowledge, how do we deal with it? Um, I, don't think, I think that we have to work with the intentions. And the, the will, I mean, we know how to make chemical weapons as well. We know how to make biological weapons. Uh, we need to work with making it unacceptable to, to do that. We know how to torture people. shouldn't do that. You know, that, that can, it's not the knowledge that is the problem in a way. Um, so obviously we need to, there's, there's lots of things you can do, codes of conduct for scientists, for example. We know, for example, the nuclear weapons laboratories in the United States have difficulties getting qualified staff because people don't actually want to work on nuclear weapons. A new generation of scientists aren't that, you know, excited about going working for a nuclear weapons producer. Uh, in the same way as the tobacco industry is having problems getting, you know, talented staff. And that's also part of making it difficult for, for you know, the producers of nuclear weapons. Uh, so I think that there's, um, there's obviously the International Atomic Energy Agency has strong verifications to verify that countries aren't developing nuclear weapons. Uh, you can't verify what's in people's minds, of course, but you can verify the. Technology. It, it does take while, so there are there are technical ways of prevent or or inspecting. And I think that when we get the nuclear armed states to actually disarm, they will put a lot of more efforts and resources into being confident about that. But for us, we think that it's a problem of political will, not the technical expertise or the the knowledge. It's a problem of getting people to not want to have nuclear weapons, because it's not in their interest anymore. Uh, And then in terms of activism, I mean, obviously, I'm in the middle of the campaign, so I see a huge amount of activism, and loads of people who want to take action. And I think that There is a newfound interest in nuclear weapons these last few years. You know, with North Korea, and particularly with Donald Trump, I mean, he's awful, but he put a spotlight on the issue. Um, So I do see that it's growing, but I think it's not perhaps uh, manifesting in the same way uh, as it did in in the kind of 70s, 80s. I don't think that this giant mass demonstrations is really perhaps what activists do some i mean we have some of them the women's march was amazing for example and things like that but it's i think you know also activism is being much, much more professionalized with employed staff rather than activists on part time i mean we've had a problem that if you don't pay people they do it when they're students and they do it when they're retired but in between between you know 25 and 65 it's hard to get people to have the time today Um, One of the things that I feel very passionate about in terms of activism in general is that it needs to be easy. You need to be able to have a life, have kids, go to work, and then still contribute to something. And I think we need to get away from this, that it's it's sort of a... um, You have to sacrifice all these other things. Uh, Nuclear disarmament activism also has a bit of a bad reputation. Uh, Being very naive. uh, I think there's kind of a legacy from the, from the Cold War that's extremely left-wing, uh, which just by that framing you sort of exclude big parts of the population that doesn't feel like this is an issue for them. Uh, what we're trying to do with the humanitarian focus is to make it, this is not about right-wing, left-wing. Uh, the loss of war is not a political issue, it's just uh, everyone should support it. Human rights should not be a political issue. Even though it's starting to become that again, unfortunately, Um, but it's you know it's bad time in general for these kind of things. Um, But I think that it's it's also important for us to connect this issue with other causes. I mean, one of the big challenges is that it's too big for people. Just like climate change, it's you know we we have we suffer from the same problem. Like climate change is that it feels people feel like they can't do make a difference. It's too heavy. It's too big. I can't do anything about this, so we need to work on, on bringing it down to a practical level, uh, things that you can do to actually make a difference and to show that you can make a difference. The, we have 500 partner organizations I can, but in reality, maybe 150 people that actually, around the world that actually works actively on this issue, it's not that many people. and We managed to take on the most powerful in the world. The richest, most military, strong countries in the world, and win they were so again. they tried to stop this treaty at every point of the way, try to stop it from being negotiated, being adopted, being signed by countries, and just these kind of group of you know we 're not famous people we 're not celebrities we 're not high level politicians, just regular people, and for me, that gives me an incredible feeling of power <laughs> like you know, we, we ban landmines, we ban cluster munitions, we ban nuclear weapons Oof, there's nothing we can't do in a way if we just really organize and perhaps we don't need that many we need key people to turn key decision makers uh, but we also I mean of course we, in, in some countries you need less people in the nuclear arms there's going to need more to do that but I think we need to it's, I think it's happening more and more um, but it needs to be relevant to people, and to the things that people care about.
0: Listen, thank you very much. I mean, there's an enormous amount that's come out of your lecture. Two things struck me, and I'll just just mention them as something to take away. I mean, I, I was very struck by your analysis at the beginning that we, we've been sort of lulled into a false sense of security in mm-hmm. the public in general at just the time when there's this massive investment in renewing these weapons. And I think that's something that we can see here very particularly in the United Kingdom. I mean, this is a country where this is a real issue that could be lively pursued. And the second thing that struck me was that I think um, typically the nuclear disarmament movement has emphasised the sort of sui generis nature, the the special, unique nature of weapons, and yet you put forward an analysis that emphasised two or three times that they're just weapons... And on the back of that, you made an argument about how you could try to turn them into symbols of shame. Mm And in warfare, questions of shame, of honour and dishonour have typically been very, very important indeed. So were it possible to turn them into a form of dishonour, I think that would be a very powerful thing indeed. Clearly, there have been many generations of activists in this area, and it's a great pleasure to see that um, here now again we have a, a successful generation taking this issue up. Can you please join me in thanking our speaker?